Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, we'll begin looking at the first verse here this morning. Part of the second verse as well. We spent the last two weeks thinking about the um, author the first week and then the audience. And so hopefully that sets the stage for us to begin considering this larger argument as well uh, from Hebrews. But before we get into the text and read it, I wanted to consider this scene. It's an important episode in the life of Helen Keller. Uh, Many of you know her story. She lost her ability to see and hear at at 19 months. Uh, They think it was possibly scarlet fever that she had. Uh, And so her family, for the first six years of her life, spent time just learning 50 signs, just so they could communicate to one another. Um, But it was not adequate, right? um, And so they ended up hiring Ann Sullivan, who herself had grown up visually impaired. She had some surgery done to where she gained much of her sight back, I I believe. But but she understood how to train up and and, uh, help Helen Keller. So at six years old, she became her instructor. And the first thing she did was to teach her how to spell words and so that she could put an object in her hand and then spell the word in her other hand. And if you've seen the reenactment um, of this, the story, there's, she usually gets a doll. That was kind of one of the first things that she had was she was given a doll and then, and then Anne spelled uh, D-O-L-L in her hand. But it was about a month of frustration not understanding Helen, not being able to put it together. What, why is she spelling these, why is she giving me these signs and this object? What does this have to do with anything? Um, and it, it didn't dawn on her until after really a, a rough, difficult day where she had in fact broken her doll, shattered it into pieces out of frustration with her teacher, um, that her teacher into, ended up having a breakthrough where she brought her over to get water. Uh, for the house, and so they were pumping water from the well, and and it and as the water was pouring over her hand, she was spelling W A T E R, and it just dawned on her. She she like a light bulb went on, and she could understand what was happening. And then she started to to go around and to pick up objects and say, "What is this? What is what is what is this? Who are you? How do I how do I refer to you? Your your teacher, okay?" These are my parents. This is mom, dad, and they. She just started grabbing everything, but it was like the entire world just opened up to her and she saw just how much she could gain and and learn and grow from there. Instead of going to bed depressed and in despair, she had hope for the first time. Well, when we begin to comprehend just the basic structure of God's word, with the eyes of faith, we begin to see the value of every jot and tittle. Every part of it contributes. Right? None of it is expendable. All of it is, has been revealed to us by a, a sovereign God, and so we want to understand it. We want to understand what God is teaching us. The author of Hebrews is, is making a larger case uh, for the superiority of Christ over the Old Testament prophets, and maybe you think, well, he's, he's sort of denigrating the Old Testament in this argument, right? He's elevating Christ. 
he's elevating the Son of God to such a degree that we almost don't need the, the Old Testament prophets, right? Is that his point, where we can just sort of focus on just the New Testament? No, no, he's, he's making the point that all of it has always had the purpose of drawing us and our eyes to Christ. It's always had the point of per, and purpose of, of revealing to us more about our God and our Savior. And so the way he makes this argument, in fact, upholds the authority of all of Scripture. There's continuity. There's also discontinuity, discontinuity between the Old and New Testament, right? There is something new. There is something radically new about the New Testament and the New Covenant compared to the Old Covenant. But all of it reveals God's will. God has spoken. And so because of that, there is a great deal of continuity as well. And we'll be making sense of that argument pretty much every week as we work our way through Hebrews. Um, I, I want to begin, though, before we even read this passage in Hebrews, and you don't need to turn there with me, but in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 39 through 49, because I think it illustrates this idea that the fog of sin and distress and despair distorts our ability to clearly see what God is doing. And we find that here in five, John 5, 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so we can elevate God's word. We can study it. We can, we can ask all the right questions. We can be jumping back and forth between the Old and New Testament. And if it's not bringing us to Christ then we're missing the point. Then it's not, gonna, it's not going to do us ultimately any good in our relationship with God. We cannot understand God's word and reject Jesus. So the point of this message this morning is to search the scriptures with the eyes of faith firmly fixed on Christ and you will have life. It's really the promise that he gives right there in John 5. And I think that's part of what the author of Hebrews. It's part of what he is making, the case he's making. So let me ask the Lord for his help in understanding it, and then we'll read this opening four verses. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And once again, we, we don't want to come uh, distracted. We don't want to come to you right now with our minds elsewhere. We want to come focused upon you, and we want to come expecting you to speak. This is your word. There is, there is a purpose in it. You want to convict us. You want to comfort us by the gospel. You want to change our hearts. You want to renew our minds. And Lord, we want to be open to that work. And so draw us in, Lord. Help us to, to have eyes to see and ears to hear the truth. And soften our hearts to respond in obedience, Lord, to appropriately make sense of this passage and then apply it to our lives that we might glorify you in christ's name we ask it amen so read with me hebrews chapter one we're reading the first four verses this is in in the greek one one continuous sentence but we're just going to be focusing on focusing on the opening verse and a half long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, 
whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Amen. This is God's holy word. So the author opens up with actually three out of four of the first words begin with the Greek letter P or pi as you might, you might have heard it uh, pronounced. So he's into alliteration, much like I oftentimes will provide for you in the outline. So I'm, it's a biblical approach, okay, My, the outlines. But I don't have that for you this morning. Uh, the author, though, he, he does emphasize that, which I think gives credence to the idea that this, there is an oratorical background to this author. He's got a, he's got a mind for, for how things sound, right? What is, what are you, how are you hearing it? And the structure of Hebrews frequently points to that oratorical um, structure, right? It, it's meant to be a message that is, that is read as a sermon, to this particular audience, but obviously God has preserved it for all of us so that it has, it has meaning and value to us all. The first thing we want to acknowledge is that in general revelation, God, God reveals himself through creation, right? The, the heavens declare his glory, Psalm 19.1. So we even, I was praying that way this morning, we, we look out at creation, we can know something of God. Um, and, and as fallen creatures, we suppress that truth, but we see his beauty in creation. We see his power. We see his invisible attributes. That's the language from Romans 1.20. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You look to his creation, and you can see and know something about God, who he is. But but really, the author of Hebrews is not focused on that general revelation. He's focused on the progressive nature of special revelation, right? The, the idea that God has come long ago in many times and in many ways through different prophets, right? He revealed himself. It's this special revelation that's the subject of this passage. There have been times and occasions in which God spoke and the means by which he spoke varied, in different seasons. So the first thing, I, let's just focus on this phrase, long ago. You can, you can really grasp a lot from just those two words, which is one word in Greek. The content of the Old Covenant has been completed almost five years prior to this author writing the letter of Hebrews. Uh, 400 years before Christ came was when Malachi uh, gave his prophecy, and, and that was the last time that they had heard from direct revelation, you know, some revelation from God. Westminster Confession of Faith refers to this verse in, in the very opening section, chapter 1, section 1. Therefore it pleased the Lord, I'm, I'm just quoting a portion of this, but uh, it's a lengthier section, but he says, Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times, and in diverse manners, or the King James language from Hebrews 1.1, to reveal himself and declare that his will unto his church. 
And then afterwards, and later on it, it brings this uh, conclusion to the section, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which maketh the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. So the Westminster Confession of Faith would, would argue that this verse is implying that the former ways in which God spoke to his people has ceased. These, these former ways of giving prophecy, they have, they have been radically changed because of the coming of, of Christ, because the Son of God has brought a full and a final revelation. And so in other words, there's a, a drastic transition that takes place. And this is that discontinuity, right? There's a transition that took place when Christ came. What had been promised by the prophets over and over again was now fulfilled by God's Son. And the primary contrast in, in Hebrews that, that the author is going to come back to time and again is this contrast between the revelation of God's law through Moses and the revelation that was given through Jesus, the newness the fullness, the completeness, the fulfillment that Jesus has brought to the law of Moses. So the entrance of the new covenant, the appearing of Christ, bringing in this new covenant, brings the old to a close. Again, that doesn't mean that it's, that it's unnecessary or unhelpful or that it's irrelevant to us today. We'll talk about that further in a moment. But this idea of long ago does mean that something radical took place with the coming of Christ and the way in which God continues to reveal himself. And then it goes on to say at many times, literally in, in the Greek, that's many parts, many, many portions. Um, Hosea 12.10 says, I spoke, this is God, I spoke to the prophets, it was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. So even though it is coming from the mouth of a prophet, it is God speaking through them in many ways. Right? And at many times, he's giving them portions, there's, there's manifold portions of God's revelation. The varied chapters of special revelation under the Old Testament were incomplete and anticipatory. There was always something else that it was pointing to. There was always something else coming down in the future, right? And so as they spoke, they revealed God's will, sometimes, oftentimes, about the future, but it was always, it was never itself going to be the last and final word until we get to Christ. Christ brings the fulfillment. And so he comes at many times or he revealed himself at many times and in many ways. Many ways here is, is the idea that like, the way in which God revealed himself was varied. <clears throat> he spoke to Adam and Eve directly. He spoke to Abraham and the fathers by dreams and visions. He spoke to Moses through a burning bush as well as from a storm on top of Mount Sinai. Storm and thunder, he's, he's revealing himself to Moses and in word. He spoke in a still, small voice to Elijah. These are varied ways. There's not one consistent stream of, of revelation where you say, oh, that can't be God because he doesn't reveal himself in that way. He was revealing himself in a very varied ways to, through the Old Testament. 
Other prophets received God's revelation through the Urim and Thummim. They cast lots to determine God's will. All of these forms of revelation took place long ago under the old covenant. That's, that's the idea here from Hebrews 1.1. And so the author is making the point that the way God spoke in the past has been radically transformed by the arrival of his son, and yet what God said in the past continues to speak. We'll see this clearly in, later on in Hebrews, so go, go ahead and look forward to chapter 3, verse 5. So lest you think by this argument from the beginning here that you don't need the Old Testament anymore, he'll, he'll, he'll say otherwise. Chapter 3, verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were, were to be spoken later. And so Moses was faithful to point forward to what would be spoken later. Jump ahead now to Hebrews 11. 11, 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Still, in this time, speaks to us. Right? The revelation that we have from these various uh, patriarchs and prophets and priests that have come before continue to serve as an example to us of their faith, their dependence upon a Messiah who would come, upon a future hope. Uh, it speaks of Abraham looking forward to a greater country, right? a, a country, an inheritance that's not made with hands, that God has formed for us. Look ahead at chapter 12, verse 24 and 25. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Again, Old Testament pointing forward to Christ. We're going to see that over and over again. We, we cannot understand it rightly if we do not understand and receive Christ as God's son. So God formally spoke to the fathers. He spoke in these long ago at many times and in many ways to the fathers. In your ESV, it says our fathers. The Greek, it just says the fathers. Now, oftentimes that phrase does refer to, um, you know, a, someone who has a Jewish heritage and someone who's speaking to Jews. So there's this, this um, continuity, this idea of, of speaking of them as our fathers, this connection to them. And so some have said, well, because it's not saying our fathers, because in the Greek it's, it's saying the fathers, then maybe there's a mixed audience. Maybe he's not just speaking to Jewish Christians. Maybe he's, there's a, Gentiles there, and he doesn't want to offend them as if he's only speaking to the Jews. And so he says the fathers. Um, the, the problem with that is Paul, writing to Corinth, writing to Gentiles in Corinth, refers to our fathers. He uses the phrase, our fathers, in reference to the wilderness generation in 1 Corinthians 10.1. So he's speaking to Gentiles, and he speaks of them as being connected to the wilderness generation. He's warning them not to be like them. Additionally, Jesus condemns his own audience of opponents, saying that they, were made in the, they are in the likeness of your fathers. 
he's like disassociating himself from that heritage in the way that they have received it, right? He says, you are in the likeness of your fathers who killed the prophets. And so, so we cannot make this um, assumption about the audience in any way or the ethnicity of the audience based upon this one phrase, right? We shouldn't read too much into his word choice here. We can't determine that. But think about the broader context of the New Testament here. Jesus spoke of the Old Testament as holding infallible authority. There's an argument for the inerrancy of Scripture and, the, and its infallibility just by looking at the way Jesus understood the Old Testament. The way he read it was that it was a word of God and that it does not err. It does not make mistakes. So he held it to have an infallible authority. You can look at Matthew 4, Matthew 5, um, specifically Matthew 4, 1 through 11, Matthew 5, 18, John 10, 35. You have the Apostle Paul upholding the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, uh, um, specifically the Old Testament, as he tells Timothy that, the, that all Scripture is breathed out by God. You do have the New Testament speaking of the other apostles' letters being divine, being God's word. Again, when he told the, uh, Paul, when he's speaking to the Corinthians about that wilderness generation, he says that they served as an example that we might not desire evil as they did. 1 Corinthians 10.6, Peter taught that the prophets spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Hebrews is right in line with the other apostles, with Jesus himself, as presenting the word of these prophets as being from God. God spoke through them to us. It's to be received as his word. But I want us to, to really consider, and I'll invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. I find this to be maybe the most, one of the most important chapters. It's hard to say the most important chapter in the Bible, but Luke 24 is such a paradigm uh, setting chapter. In Luke 24, Jesus confirms the ultimate purpose of the Old Testament. Two disciples on the road to Emmaus had, had clearly read their Bibles wrong. They had a misunderstanding of Jesus. It begins there in verse 13. We're not going to read the whole section, but I'll summarize it. Most of Jesus' disciples had a false understanding of who the Messiah was and what he was going to do and what he was going to accomplish. They, they were confused about the Savior and, and what he was, how he would rescue them. They had a distorted view of the person of Christ. They had a distorted view of, of the purpose of Christ and of the power of Christ. And it's what led to them wanting to kill him. Talk, talking about his general Jewish audience. The disciples obviously were followers of his and they wanted to believe him, but clearly they don't understand because after he dies on the cross, they're all devastated. These two in particular are, are going to Emmaus after they've just heard a testimony that, that Jesus isn't in his tomb. So they're, they're, they're going in the opposite direction and they're mourning. And when Jesus appears to them and begins speaking to them and, and withholds his identity from them, and he asks them why they're sad, they're like, are you, 
Are you the only one here that doesn't know what's happened in these last few days? And, and they're just in despair, and he calls them foolish ones. Oh, foolish ones. How come, you, how come you didn't believe when I said all this had to take place? He criticizes their ignorance. He corrects their false assumptions. And then he does this. Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, beginning with Moses is a reference to the first five books of the Bible, Pentateuch, that Moses authored. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. He's going through the prophets, the minor prophets, going back to all of Scripture. There's, there's no part of Scripture that he could have turned to and not said, this is, this is about me. This is ultimately teaching you about me. It wasn't until Jesus then accurately taught them the scriptures that their eyes were opened and that they were able to rightly see him. They recognized him. And it says in verse 31, and their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us? while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures. Now, now think about what that means. They don't know who this man is. He is communicating them about his word and how it, about God's word, about what it says and reveals about him, and their hearts are burning. And then their eyes are opened, and they recognize him. It's a remarkable passage. Had, had the words of that sermon been recorded for us, you think, man, I, I wish I was there. I wish I was a fly on the wall. I wish I could have been listening in on that sermon. But had they been recorded for us, we would incorrectly assume that the passages he's, he points out are the only passages which speak of Jesus. We would have limited ourselves to that. We would have said, that I can be confident that this speaks of Jesus, but now, instead, it opens up the entire Old Testament to us so that we can search for Christ. We can be compelled to search for him every time we open our Bible. Now, think back to the opening analogy I was giving from Helen Keller. I don't know how things began to make sense in her mind. I don't know what it was. If, if, there, was, I don't, if there was just something that was said or, or how, how things triggered for her to, to, to finally get it. One moment she is confused and frustrated and destroying things. And the next minute she is overwhelmed with joy at the prospect of the rest of her life, being able to study and learn. So I said that earlier she had taken her doll and she had shattered it on the ground and her instructor had swept the doll in, over by the hearth. And, uh, and so it says that she... She goes back in uh, to her house, and, and she writes this in her autobiography. On entering the door, I remember the doll I had broken. I felt my way to the hearth and picked up the pieces, and I tried vainly to put them together. Then my eyes filled with tears, for I realized that 
I, I realized what I had done for the first time. I felt repentance and sorrow. So the happiest day of Helen Keller's life, at least up to this point, involved a breakthrough in knowledge that coincided with genuine repentance. That's what faith looks like. Once you have really seen Christ, there is an earnest desire for more of him. You will search for Christ everywhere. In his creation, especially, though, in his word. And when our distorted vision is repaired, we become enamored with God. We seek to know him, to see him more clearly. And Christ's beauty is infinite. So we'll never come to the end of our growing in Christ, even into eternity. And so the point here from Hebrews is that Jesus is the climax of history. He's, he's the focus of these last day, days. It's the age of the Messiah. Christ fulfills all previous revelation. And the question is, have you placed your faith in him? When the Holy Spirit grabs your attention, everything else fades away. The hearts of those disciples burned for more of Christ. In fact, they begged him to remain with them. They wanted to hear more. Keep teaching us. Have you felt that way? Ever? Does, do you still feel that way? When the Spirit works through his word, are you enamored by him? Because Jesus is ready to receive you, the Holy Spirit can lead you to him whenever you open his word in faith. And so I pray that he would continue to do that work as we make our way through this sermon series. Let's ask for his help in doing that. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we can open your word and that we can meet with you, that we can commune with you. And that there are so many things competing for our attention, competing for our affections. And Lord, it would be easy to set your word on the shelf and to not pick it up again until we come to church the next week. May, not, may that not be true of any of us, Lord. May we treasure your word above food, knowing that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Lord, we want to recognize the authority, the inerrancy, the, the fact that your word is, is God-breathed, it's inspired. Lord, we want to receive it and to be changed by it. So Lord, help us to depend upon your word more. Help us to, to, to recognize that what it is showing us is more of our Lord and Savior, whom we are called to rejoice and delight in and to rest in. 
Lord, it's not a burden for us to pick up your word and read it. It's a privilege. So help us to consider it that way. And that each time we gather together and sit under its preaching, Lord, we pray that, that we might acknowledge and expect you to speak. To acknowledge that you are speaking through your word. And to expect our ears to be open to receive it. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified as we take up your word daily. Meditate upon its truth. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand and you can either follow along in your Trinity Psalter hymnal or in your music or your song sheet handout. We'll be singing Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you I refuge seek. This is a new one for us. We're just going to be singing the first four verses. We, it's new, right? right? Do you yeah. need to go through it first? I'll sing the first verse. Okay, so we're going to listen to Mark sing it, the first verse, and then we'll start it again. <laughs> 